When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment your work stress disappears as you kayak through the canyons. Or the moment you discover the life-changing effects of prickly pear chocolate. But nothing beats the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the very first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Book 1, Chapter 19 of Little Dorrit. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recorded by Mill Nicholson. Little Dorrit by Charles Dickens. Book 1, Poverty. Chapter 19. The Father of the Marshalsea in Two or Three Relations The brothers William and Frederick Dorrit, walking up and down the college yard, of course on the aristocratic or pump side, for the father made it a point of his state to be chary of going among his children on the poor side, except on Sunday mornings, Christmas days, and other occasions of ceremony, in the observance whereof he was very punctual and at which times he laid his hand upon the heads of their infants, and blessed those young insolvents with a benignity that was highly edifying. The brothers, walking up and down the college yard together, were a memorable sight. Frederick the Free was so humbled, bowed, withered, and faded. William the Bond was so courtly, condescending, and benevolently conscious of a position, that in this regard only, if in no other, the brothers were a spectacle to wonder at. They walked up and down the yard on the evening of Little Dorrit's Sunday interview with her lover on the Iron Bridge. The cares of state were over for that day, the drawing-room had been well attended, several new presentations had taken place, the three and sixpence accidentally left on the table had accidentally increased to twelve shillings, and the father of the Marshalsea refreshed himself with a whiff of cigar. As he walked up and down, affably accommodating his step to the shuffle of his brother, not proud in his superiority, but considerate of that poor creature, bearing with him, and breathing toleration of his infirmities in every little puff of smoke that issued from his lips, and aspired to get over the spiked wall, he was a sight to wonder at. His brother Frederick, of the dim eye, palsied hand, bent form, and groping mind, submissively shuffled at his side accepting his patronage as he accepted every incident of the labyrinthian world in which he had got lost. He held the usual screwed bit of whitey-brown paper in his hand, from which he ever and again unscrewed a spare pinch of snuff. That, falteringly taken, he would glance at his brother, not unadmiringly, put his hands behind him, and shuffle on so at his side until he took another pinch, or stood still to look about him, perchance suddenly missing his clarionet. The college visitors were melting away as the shades of night drew on, but the yard was still pretty full, the collegians being mostly out, seeing their friends to the lodge. As the brothers paced the yard, William the Bond looked about him to receive salutes, 
returned them by graciously lifting off his hat, and, with an engaging air, prevented Frederick the Free from running against the company, or being jostled against the wall. The collegians, as a body, were not easily impressible, but even they, according to their various ways of wondering, appeared to find in the two brothers a sight to wonder at. "'You are a little low this evening, Frederick,' said the father of the Marshalsea. "'Anything the matter?' "'The matter?' He stared for a moment, and then dropped his head and eyes again. "'No, William, no, nothing is the matter.' "'If you could be persuaded to smarten yourself up a little, Frederick—' "'Ay, ay.' said the old man hurriedly, but I can't be, I can't be, don't talk so, that's all over. The father of the Marshalsea glanced at a passing collegian, with whom he was on friendly terms, as who should say, an enfeebled old man this, but he is my brother, sir, my brother, and the voice of nature is potent, and steered his brother clear of the handle of the pump by the threadbare sleeve. Nothing would have been wanting to the perfection of his character as a fraternal guide, philosopher, and friend, if he had only steered his brother clear of ruin, instead of bringing it upon him. "'I think, William,' said the object of his affectionate consideration, "'that I am tired, and will go home to bed.' "'My dear Frederick,' returned the other. "'Don't let me detain you. Don't sacrifice your inclination to me.' "'Late hours, and a heated atmosphere, and years, I suppose,' said Frederick, "'weaken me.' "'My dear Frederick,' returned the father of the Marshalsea, "'do you think you are sufficiently careful of yourself?' Do you think your habits are as precise and methodical as, shall I say, as mine are? Not to revert again to that little eccentricity which I mentioned just now, I doubt if you take air and exercise enough, Frederick. Here is the parade always at your service. Why not use it more regularly than you do? Ah, sighed the other. Yes, 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 yes. But it is of no use saying yes, yes, my dear Frederick, the father of the Marshalsea, in his mild wisdom, persisted, unless you act on that assent. Consider my case, Frederick. I am a kind of example. Necessity and time have taught me what to do. At certain stated hours of the day you will find me on the parade, in my room, in the lodge, reading the paper, receiving company, eating and drinking. I have impressed upon Amy, during many years, that I must have my meals, for instance, punctually. Amy has grown up in a sense of the importance of these arrangements, and you know what a good girl she is." The brother only sighed again, as he plodded dreamily along. Ah, yes, 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 yes. My dear fellow, said the father of the Marshalsea, laying his hand upon his shoulder, and mildly rallying him, mildly, because of his weakness, poor dear soul. You said that before, and it does not express much, Frederick. 
even if it means much. I wish I could rouse you, my good Frederick. You want to be roused.' "'Yes, William, yes, no doubt,' returned the other, lifting his dim eyes to his face. "'But I am not like you.' The father of the Marshalsea said, with a shrug of modest self-depreciation, "'Oh, you might be like me, my dear Frederick, you might be, if you chose,' and forbore, in the magnanimity of his strength, to press his fallen brother further. There was a great deal of leave-taking going on in corners, as was usual on Sunday nights, and here and there in the dark some poor woman, wife or mother, was weeping with a new collegian. The time had been when the father himself had wept, in the shades of that yard, as his own poor wife had wept. But it was many years ago, and now he was like a passenger aboard ship in a long voyage, who has recovered from sea-sickness, and is impatient of that weakness in the fresher passengers taken aboard at the last port. He was inclined to remonstrate, and to express his opinion that people who couldn't get on without trying had no business there. In manner, if not in words, he always testified his displeasure at these interruptions of the general harmony, and it was so well understood that delinquents usually withdrew if they were aware of him. On this Sunday evening he accompanied his brother to the gate with an air of endurance and clemency, being in a bland temper and graciously disposed to overlook the tears. In the flaring gaslight of the lodge several collegians were basking, some taking leave of visitors, and some who had no visitors watching the frequent turning of the key, and conversing with one another, and with Mr. Chivery. The paternal entrance made a sensation, of course, and Mr. Chivery, touching his hat in a short manner, though, with his key, hoped he found himself tolerable. "'Thank you, Chivery. Quite well. And you?' Mr. Chivery said in a low growl, "'Oh, he was all right,' which was his general way of acknowledging inquiries after his health when a little sullen. "'I had a visit from young John to-day, Chivery, and very smart he looked, I assure you.' So Mr. Chivery had heard. Mr. Chivery must confess, however, that his wish was that the boy didn't lay out so much money upon it. For what did it bring him in? It only brought him in vexation, and he could get that anywhere for nothing. "'How vexation, Chivery?' asked the benignant father. "'No odds,' returned Mr. Chivery. "'Never mind. Mr. Frederick's going out.' "'Yes, Chivery, my brother is going home to bed. He is tired and not quite well. Take care, Frederick, take care. Good night, my dear Frederick.' Shaking hands with his brother, and touching his greasy hat to the company in the lodge, Frederick slowly shuffled out of the door which Mr. Chivery unlocked for him. The father of the Marshalsea showed the amiable solicitude of a superior being that he should come to no harm. "'Be so kind as to keep the door open a moment, Chivery, that I may see him go along the passage and down the steps. Take care, Frederick. He is very infirm. Mind the steps. He is so very absent. Be careful how you cross, Frederick. I really don't like the notion of his going wandering at large. He is so extremely liable to be run over.' With these words, and with a face expressive of many uneasy doubts and much anxious guardianship, 
he turned his regards upon the assembled company in the lodge, so plainly indicating that his brother was to be pitied for not being under lock and key, that an opinion to that effect went round among the collegians assembled. But he did not receive it with unqualified assent. On the contrary, he said, "'No gentleman, no. Let them not misunderstand him. His brother Frederick was much broken, no doubt, and it might be more comfortable to himself, the father of the Marshalsea, to know that he was safe within the walls. Still, it must be remembered that to support an existence there during many years required a certain combination of qualities. He did not say high qualities, but qualities, moral qualities. Now, had his brother Frederick that peculiar union of qualities? Gentlemen, he was a most excellent man, a most gentle, tender, and estimable man, with the simplicity of a child. But would he, though unsuited for most other places, do for that place? No, he said confidently, no. And he said, heaven forbid, that Frederick should be there in any other character than in his present voluntary character. Gentlemen, whoever came to that college, to remain there a length of time, must have strength of character, to go through a good deal, and to come out of a good deal. Was his beloved brother Frederick that man? No. They saw him, even as it was, crushed. Misfortune crushed him. He had not power of recoil enough, not elasticity enough, to be a long time in such a place, and yet preserve his self-respect, and feel conscious that he was a gentleman. Frederick had not, if he might use the expression, power enough to see in any delicate little attentions, and, and, testimonials, that he might under such circumstances receive the goodness of human nature, the fine spirit animating the collegians as a community, and at the same time no degradation to himself, and no depreciation of his claims as a gentleman. Gentlemen, God bless you. Such was the homily with which he improved and pointed the occasion to the company in the lodge, before turning into the sallow yard again, and going with his own poor shabby dignity past the collegian in the dressing-gown, who had no coat, and past the collegian in the seaside slippers, who had no shoes, and past the stout greengrocer collegian in the corduroy knee-breeches, who had no cares, and past the lean clerk collegian in buttonless black, who had no hopes up his own poor shabby staircase to his own poor shabby room. There the table was laid for his supper, and his old grey gown was ready for him on his chair-back at the fire. His daughter put her little prayer-book in her pocket, had she been praying for pity on all prisoners and captives, and rose to welcome him. "'Uncle had gone home, then?' she asked him, as she changed his coat and gave him his black velvet cap. "'Yes, Uncle had gone home.' Had her father enjoyed his walk? Why, not much, Amy, not much. No. Did he not feel quite well? As she stood behind him, leaning over his chair so lovingly, he looked with downcast eyes at the fire. An uneasiness stole over him that was like a touch of shame, and when he spoke, as he presently did, it was in an unconnected and embarrassed manner. Something I— <clears throat> "'I don't know what has gone wrong with Chivery. "'He is not, uh, not nearly so obliging and attentive as usual to-night. "'It, uh, it, 
"'It's a little thing, but it puts me out, my love. "'It's impossible to forget,' turning his hands over and over, and looking closely at them. "'That, <coughs> that, in such a life as mine, I am unfortunately dependent on these men for something every hour in the day.' Her arm was on his shoulder, but she did not look in his face while he spoke. Bending her head, she looked another way. "'I, uh, <coughs> I can't think, Amy, what has given Chivery offence. He is generally so, so very attentive and respectful, and to-night he was quite, uh, quite short with me. Other people there, too.' why good heaven if i was to lose the support and recognition of chivery and his brother officers i might starve to death here while he spoke he was opening and shutting his hands like valves so conscious all the time of that touch of shame that he shrunk before his own knowledge of his meaning i <clears throat> i can't think what it's owing to I am sure I cannot imagine what the cause of it is. There was a certain Jackson here once, a turnkey of the name of Jackson. I don't think you can remember him, my dear, you are very young. And, ahem, and he had a brother, and this young brother paid his addresses to, at least did not go so far as to pay his addresses to, but admired respectfully admired the not daughter the sister of one of us a rather distinguished collegian i may say very much so his name was captain martin and he consulted me on the question whether it was necessary that his daughter sister should hazard offending the turnkey brother by being too uh, too plain with the other brother captain martin was a gentleman and a man of honour and i put it to him first to give me his his own opinion captain martin highly respected in the army then unhesitatingly said that it appeared to him that his <coughs> sister was not called upon to understand the young man too distinctly and that she might lead him on i am doubtful whether lead him on was captain martin's exact expression indeed i think he said tolerate him on her father's i should say brother's account i hardly know how i have strayed into this story i suppose it has been through being unable to account for chivery but as to the connection between the two i don't see his voice died away as if she could not bear the pain of hearing him and her hand had gradually crept to his lips. For a little while there was a dead silence and stillness, and he remained shrunk in his chair, and she remained with her arm round his neck, and her head bowed down upon his shoulder. His supper was cooking in a saucepan on the fire, and, when she moved, it was to make it ready for him on the table. He took his usual seat, she took hers, and he began his meal. They did not, as yet, 
look at one another. By little and little he began, laying down his knife and fork with a noise, taking things up sharply, biting at his bread as if he were offended with it, and in other similar ways showing that he was out of sorts. At length he pushed his plate from him, and spoke aloud, with the strangest inconsistency. "'What does it matter whether I eat or starve? What does it matter whether such a blighted life as mine comes to an end now, next week, or next year? What am I worth to any one? A poor prisoner fed on arms and broken victuals, a squalid, disgraced wretch—' "'Father! Father!' As he rose, she went on her knees to him, and held up her hands to him. "'Amy!' he went on, in a suppressed voice, trembling violently, and looking at her as wildly as if he had gone mad. "'I tell you, if you could see me as your mother saw me, you wouldn't believe it to be the creature you have only looked at through the bars of this cage. I was young, I was accomplished, I was good-looking, I was independent. By God, I was a child, and people sought me out and envied me, envied me. Dear father, she tried to take down the shaking arm that he flourished in the air, but he resisted, and put her hand away. If I had a but a picture of myself in those days. Though it was ever so ill done, you, you would be proud of it. You would be proud of it. But I have no such a thing. Now let me be a warning. Let no man,' he cried, looking haggardly about, "'fail to preserve at least that little of the times of his prosperity and respect. Let his children have that clue to what he was.' unless my face when i am dead subsides into the long departed look they say such things happen i don't know my children will have never seen me father father oh despise me despise me look away from me don't listen to me stop me blush for me cry for me even you amy do it do it i do it to myself I'm hardened now. I have sunk too low to care long even for that. Dear father, loved father, darling of my heart, she was clinging to him with her arms, and she got him to drop into his chair again, and caught at the raised arm, and tried to put it round her neck. Let it lie there, father. Look at me, father. Kiss me, father. Only think of me, father for one little moment. Still he went on in the same wild way, though it was gradually breaking down into a miserable whining. And yet I have some respect here. I have made some stand against it. I am not quite trodden down. Go out and ask who is the chief person in the place. They'll tell you it's your father. "'Go out and ask who is never trifled with, and who is always treated with some delicacy. "'They'll say, your father. "'Go out and ask what funeral here. "'It must be here. "'I know it can be nowhere else. "'Will make more talk, and perhaps more grief, than any that has ever gone out that gate. "'They'll say, your father's. "'Well, then, Amy, 
amy is your father so universally despised is there nothing to redeem him will you have nothing to remember him by but his ruin and decay will you be able to have no affection for him when he is gone poor castaway gone he burst into tears of maudlin pity for himself and at length suffering her to embrace him and take charge of him let his grey head rest against her cheek and bewailed his wretchedness presently he changed the subject of his lamentations and clasping his hands about her as she embraced him cried o oh, amy his motherless forlorn child oh the days that he had seen her careful and laborious for him then he reverted to himself and weakly told her how much better she would have loved him if she had known him in his vanished character and how he would have married her to a gentleman who should have been proud of her as his daughter and how at which he cried again she should first have ridden at his fatherly side on her own horse and how the crowd by which he meant in effect the people who had given him the twelve shillings he then had in his pocket should have trudged the dusty roads respectfully thus now boasting now despairing in either fit a captive with the jail rot upon him and the impurity of his prison worn into the grain of his soul he revealed his degenerate state to his affectionate child no one else ever beheld him in the details of his humiliation little wrecked the collegians who were laughing in their rooms over his late address in the lodge what a serious picture they had in their obscure gallery of the marshalsea that sunday night there was a classical daughter once perhaps who ministered to her father in his prison as her mother had ministered to her little dorrit though of the unheroic modern stock and mere english did much more in comforting her father's wasted heart upon her innocent breast and turning to it a fountain of love and fidelity that never ran dry or waned through all his years of famine she soothed him asked him for his forgiveness if she had been or seemed to have been undutiful told him heaven knows truly that she could not honour him more if he were the favourite of fortune and the whole world acknowledged him when his tears were dried and he sobbed in his weakness no longer and was free from that touch of shame and had recovered his usual bearing she prepared the remains of his supper afresh and sitting by his side rejoiced to see him eat and drink for now he sat in his black velvet cap and old grey gown magnanimous again and would have comported himself towards any collegian who might have looked in to ask his advice like a great moral lord chesterfield or master of the ethical ceremonies of the marshalsea to keep his attention engaged she talked with him about his wardrobe when he was pleased to say that yes indeed those shirts she proposed would be exceedingly acceptable for those he had were worn out, and being ready-made had never fitted him. Being conversational, and in a reasonable flow of spirits, he then invited her attention to his coat as it hung behind the door, remarking that the father of the place would set an indifferent example to his children, already disposed to be slovenly, if he went among them out at elbows. He was jocular, too, as to the healing of his shoes, but became grave on the subject of his cravat and promised her that, when she could afford it, she should buy him a new one. While he smoked out his cigar in peace, she made his bed, and put the small room in order for his repose. Being weary then, owing to the advanced hour and his emotions, 
he came out of his chair to bless her and wish her good-night. All this time he had never once thought of her dress, her shoes, her need of anything. No other person upon earth save herself could have been so unmindful of her wants. He kissed her many times with, "'Bless you, my love. Good-night, my dear.' But her gentle breast had been so deeply wounded by what she had seen of him, that she was unwilling to leave him alone, lest he should lament and despair again. "'Father, dear, I'm not tired. Let me come back presently, when you are in bed, and sit by you.' He asked her, with an air of protection, if she felt solitary. "'Yes, father.' "'Then come back, by all means, my love. "'I shall be very quiet, father.' "'Don't think of me, my dear,' he said, giving her his kind permission fully. "'Come back, by all means.' He seemed to be dozing when she returned, and she put the low fire together very softly, lest she should wake him. But he overheard her, and called out who was that. "'Only Amy, father.' "'Amy, my child, come here. I want to say a word to you.' He raised himself a little in his low bed, as she kneeled beside it, to bring her face near him, and put his hand between hers. Oh, both the private father and the father of the Marshalsea were strong within him then. "'My love, you have had a life of hardship here.' No companions, no recreations, many cares, I am afraid. Don't think of that, dear. I never do. You know my position, Amy. I have not been able to do much for you, but all I have been able to do, I have done. Yes, my dear father, she rejoined, kissing him. I know, I know. I am in the twenty-third year of my life here," he said, with a catch in his breath. There was not so much a sob as an irrepressible sound of self-approval, the momentary outburst of a noble consciousness. It is all I could do for my children. I have done it. Amy, my love, you are by far the best loved of the three. I have had you principally in my mind. Whatever I have done for your sake, my child, I have done freely, and without murmuring." Only the wisdom that holds the clue to all hearts, and all mysteries, can surely know to what extent a man, especially a man brought down as this man had been, can impose upon himself. Enough for the present place, that he lay down with wet eyelashes, serene, in a manner majestic, after bestowing his life of degradation as a sort of portion on the devoted child upon whom its miseries had fallen so heavily, and whose love alone had saved him to be even what he was. That child had no doubts, asked herself no questions, for she was but too content to see him with a lustre round his head. Poor dear, good dear, truest, kindest, dearest, were the only words she had for him, as she asked him to rest. She never left him all that night. As if she had done him a wrong, which her tenderness could hardly repair, she sat by him in his sleep, at times softly kissing him with suspended breath, and calling him in a whisper by some endearing name. 
At times she stood aside so as not to intercept the low firelight, and, watching him when it fell upon his sleeping face, wondered did he look now at all as he had looked when he was prosperous and happy? As he had so touched her by imagining that he might look once more in that awful time. At the thought of that time, she kneeled beside his bed again and prayed, Oh, spare his life! Oh, save him to me! Oh, look down upon my dear, long-suffering, unfortunate, much-changed, dear, dear father! Not until the morning came to protect him and encourage him did she give him a last kiss and leave the small room. When she had stolen downstairs and along the empty yard, and had crept up to her own high garret, the smokeless housetops and the distant country hills were discernible over the wall in the clear morning. As she gently opened the window, and looked eastward down the prison yard, the spikes upon the wall were tipped with red, then made a sullen purple pattern on the sun as it came flaming up into the heavens. The spikes had never looked so sharp and cruel, nor the bar so heavy nor the prison-space so gloomy and contracted. She thought of the sunrise on rolling rivers, of the sunrise on wide seas, of the sunrise on rich landscapes, of the sunrise on great forests where the birds were waking and the trees were rustling, and she looked down into the living grave on which the sun had risen, with her father in it three and twenty years, and said, in a burst of sorrow and compassion, "No." No, I have never seen him in my life. End of Book One, Chapter Nineteen. Book One, Chapter Twenty of Little Dorrit. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recorded by Mill Nicholson. Little Dorrit by Charles Dickens. Book One, Poverty. Chapter Twenty, Moving in Society. If young John Chivery had had the inclination and the power to write a satire on family pride, he would have had no need to go for an avenging illustration out of the family of his beloved. He would have found it amply in that gallant brother and that dainty sister so steeped in mean experiences, and so loftily conscious of the family name, so ready to beg or borrow from the poorest, to eat of anybody's bread, spend anybody's money, drink from anybody's cup, and break it afterwards. To have painted the sordid facts of their lives, and they, throughout invoking the death's-head apparition of the family gentility, to come and scare their benefactors, would have made young John a satirist of the first water. Tip had turned his liberty to hopeful account by becoming a billiard-marker. He had troubled himself so little as to the means of his release, that Clennam scarcely needed to have been at the pains of impressing the mind of Mr. Plornish on that subject. Whoever had paid him the compliment, he very readily accepted the compliment with his compliments, and there was an end of it. Issuing forth from the gate on these easy terms, he became a billiard-marker, and now occasionally looked in at the little skittle-ground in a green new-market coat, second-hand, with a shining collar and bright buttons, new, and drank the beer of the collegians. 
one solid stationary point in the looseness of this gentleman's character was that he respected and admired his sister amy the feeling had never induced him to spare her a moment's uneasiness or to put himself to any restraint or inconvenience on her account but with that marshalsea taint upon his love he loved her the same rank marshalsea flavour was to be recognised in his distinctly perceiving that she sacrificed her life to her father and in his having no idea that she had done anything for himself when this spirited young man and his sister had begun systematically to produce the family skeleton for the overawing of the college this narrative cannot precisely state probably at about the period when they began to dine on the college charity it is certain that the more reduced and necessitous they were the more pompously the skeleton emerged from its tomb and that when there was anything particularly shabby in the wind the skeleton always came out with the ghastliest flourish little dorrit was late on the monday morning for her father slept late and afterwards there was his breakfast to prepare and his room to arrange she had no engagement to go out to work however and therefore stayed with him until with maggie's help she had put everything right about him and had seen him off upon his morning walk of twenty yards or so to the coffee-house to read the paper she then got on her bonnet and went out having been anxious to get out much sooner there was as usual a cessation of the small talk in the lodge as she passed through it and a collegian who had come in on saturday night received the intimation from the elbow of a more seasoned collegian look out here she is she wanted to see her sister but when she got round to mr cripples's she found that both her sister and her uncle had gone to the theatre where they were engaged having taken thought of this probability by the way and having settled that in such case she would follow them she set off afresh for the theatre which was on that side of the river and not very far away little dorrit was almost as ignorant of the ways of theatres as of the ways of gold mines and when she was directed to a furtive sort of door with a curious up-all-night air about it that appeared to be ashamed of itself and to be hiding in an alley she hesitated to approach it being further deterred by the sight of some half-dozen close-shaved gentlemen with their hats very strangely on who were lounging about the door looking not at all unlike collegians on her applying to them reassured by this resemblance for a direction to miss dorrit they made way for her to enter a dark hall it was more like a great grim lamp gone out than anything else where she could hear the distant playing of music and the sound of dancing feet a man so much in want of airing that he had a blue mould upon him sat watching this dark place from a hole in a corner like a spider and he told her that he would send a message up to miss dorrit by the first lady or gentleman who went through the first lady who went through had a roll of music half in her muff and half out of it and was in such a tumbled condition altogether that it seemed as if it would be an act of kindness to iron her but as she was very good-natured and said come with me i'll soon find miss dorrit for you miss dorrit's sister went with her drawing nearer and nearer at every step she took in the darkness to the sound of music and the sound of dancing feet at last they came into a maze of dust where a quantity of people were tumbling over one another and where there was such a confusion of unaccountable shapes of beams bulkheads brick walls ropes and rollers and such a mixing of gaslight and daylight that they seemed to have got on the wrong side of the pattern of the universe 
Little Dorrit, left to herself, and knocked against by somebody every moment, was quite bewildered, when she heard her sister's voice. "'Why, good gracious, Amy, whatever brought you here?' "'I wanted to see you, Fanny, dear, and as I am going out all day to-morrow, I knew you might be engaged all day to-day, I thought—' "'But the idea, Amy, of you coming behind, I never did.' As her sister said this in no very cordial tone of welcome, she conducted her to a more open part of the maze, where various golden chairs and tables were heaped together, and where a number of young ladies were sitting on anything they could find, chattering. All these young ladies wanted ironing, and all had a curious way of looking everywhere while they chattered. Just as the sisters arrived here, a monotonous boy, in a Scotch cap, put his head round a beam on the left, and said, "'Less noise there, ladies!' and disappeared, immediately after which, a sprightly gentleman, with a quantity of long black hair, looked round a beam on the right, and said, "'Less noise there, darlings!' and also disappeared. "'The notion of you among professionals, Amy, is really the last thing I could have conceived.' said her sister. "'Why, how did you ever get here?' "'I don't know. The lady who told you I was here was so good as to bring me in.' "'Like you quiet little things. You can make your way anyway, I believe. I couldn't have managed it, Amy, though I know so much more of the world.' It was the family custom to lay it down as family law that she was a plain, domestic little creature, without the great and sage experience of the rest. This family fiction was the family assertion of itself against her services, not to make too much of them. "'Well, and what have you got on your mind, Amy? Of course you have got something on your mind about me,' said Fanny. She spoke as if her sister, between two and three years her junior, were her prejudiced grandmother. "'It is not much. But since you told me of the lady who gave you the bracelet, Fanny—' The monotonous boy put his head round the beam on the left, and said, "'Look out there, ladies!' and disappeared. The sprightly gentleman with the black hair as suddenly put his head round the beam on the right, and said, "'Look out there, darlings!' and also disappeared. Thereupon all the young ladies rose, and began shaking their skirts out behind. "'Well, Amy,' said Fanny, doing as the rest did, "'what were you going to say?' "'Since you told me a lady had given you the bracelet you showed me, Fanny, I I've not been quite easy on your account, and indeed want to know a little more, if you will confide more to me.' "'Now, ladies,' said the boy in the Scotch cap. "'Now, darlings,' said the gentleman with the black hair. They were every one gone in a moment, and the music and the dancing feet were heard again. Little Dorrit sat down in a golden chair made quite giddy by these rapid interruptions. Her sister and the rest were a long time gone, and during their absence a voice—it appeared to be that of the gentleman with the black hair—was continually calling out through the music, "'One, two, three, four, five, six, go! One, two, three, four, five, six, go steady darlings one two three four five six go ultimately the voice stopped and they all came back again more or less out of breath folding themselves in their shawls and making ready for the streets stop a moment amy and let them get away before us whispered fanny 
They were soon left alone, nothing more important happening in the meantime, and the boy looking round his old beam and saying, "'Everybody at eleven to-morrow, ladies,' and the gentleman with the black hair looking round his old beam and saying, "'Everybody eleven to-morrow, darlings,' each in his own accustomed manner. When they were alone, something was rolled up, or by other means, got out of the way, and there was a great empty well before them, looking down into the depths of which Fanny said, "'Now, uncle!' Little Dorrit, as her eyes became accustomed to the darkness, faintly made him out at the bottom of the well, in an obscure corner by himself, with his instrument in its ragged case under his arm. The old man looked as if the remote high gallery windows, with their little strip of sky, might have been the point of his better fortunes, from which he had descended until he had gradually sunk down below there to the bottom. He had been in that place six nights a week for many years, but had never been observed to raise his eyes above his music-book, and was confidently believed to have never seen a play. There were legends in the place, that he did not so much as know the popular heroes and heroines by sight, and that the low comedian had mugged at him in his richest manner fifty nights for a wager, and he had shown no trace of consciousness. The carpenters had a joke to the effect that he was dead, without being aware of it, and the frequenters of the pit supposed him to pass his whole life, night and day, and Sunday and all, in the orchestra. They had tried him a few times, with pinches of snuff offered over the rails, and he had always responded to this attention with a momentary waking-up of manner that had the pale phantom of a gentleman in it. Beyond this he never, on any occasion, had any other part in what was going on, than the part written for the clarionet. In private life, where there was no part for the clarionet, he had no part at all. Some said he was poor, some said he was a wealthy miser, but he said nothing, never lifted up his bowed head, never varied his shuffling gait by getting his springless foot from the ground. Though expecting now to be summoned by his niece, he did not hear her until she had spoken to him three or four times, nor was he at all surprised by the presence of two nieces instead of one but merely said, in his tremulous voice, "'I am coming! I am coming!' and crept forth by some underground way which emitted a cellarous smell. "'And so, Amy,' said her sister, when the three together passed out at the door that had such a shamed-faced consciousness of being different from other doors, the uncle instinctively taking Amy's arm as the arm to be relied on. "'So, Amy, you're curious about me?' She was pretty, and conscious, and rather flaunting, and the condescension with which she put aside the superiority of her charms, and of her worldly experience, and addressed her sister on almost equal terms, had a vast deal of the family in it. "'I am interested, Fanny, and concerned in anything that concerns you.' "'So you are, so you are, and you are the best of Amy's.' If I am ever a little provoking, I am sure you'll consider what a thing it is to occupy my position, and feel a consciousness of being superior to it. I shouldn't care,' said the daughter of the father of the Marshalsea, "'if others were not so common. None of them have come down in the world as we have. They are all on their own level. Common.' Little Dorrit mildly looked at the speaker, but did not interrupt her. Fanny took out her handkerchief, and rather angrily wiped her eyes. "'I was not born where you were, you know, Amy. 
and perhaps that makes a difference. My dear child, when we get rid of Uncle, you shall know all about it. We'll drop him at the cook's shop, where he is going to dine." They walked on with him until they came to a dirty shop-window in a dirty street, which was made almost opaque by the steam of hot meats, vegetables, and puddings. But glimpses were to be caught of a roast leg of pork, bursting into tears of sage and onion, in a metal reservoir full of gravy, of an unctuous piece of roast beef, and blisterous Yorkshire pudding, bubbling hot in a similar receptacle, of a stuffed fillet of veal in rapid cut, of a ham in a perspiration with the pace it was going at, of a shallow tank of baked potatoes glued together by their own richness, of a truss or two of boiled greens, and other substantial delicacies. Within were a few wooden partitions, behind which such customers as found it more convenient to take away their dinners in stomachs than in their hands, packed their purchases in solitude. Fanny, opening her reticule, as they surveyed these things, produced from that repository a shilling, and handed it to Uncle. Uncle, after not looking at it a little while, divined its object, and muttering, Dinner! Ah, yes, yes, yes! slowly vanished from them into the mist. Now, Amy, said her sister, come with me, if you are not too tired to walk to Harley Street, Cavendish Square. The air with which she threw off this distinguished address, and the toss she gave to her new bonnet, which was more gauzy than serviceable, made her sister wonder. However, she expressed her readiness to go to Harley Street and thither they directed their steps. Arrived at that grand destination, Fanny singled out the handsomest house, and knocking at the door, inquired for Mrs. Myrtle. The footman who opened the door, although he had powder on his head, and was backed up by two other footmen likewise powdered, not only admitted Mrs. Myrtle to be at home, but asked Fanny to walk in. Fanny walked in, taking her sister with her, and they went upstairs, with powder going before, and powder stopping behind, and were left in a spacious, semicircular drawing-room, one of several drawing-rooms, where there was a parrot on the outside of a golden cage, holding on by its beak, with its scaly legs in the air, and putting itself into many strange upside-down postures. This peculiarity has been observed in birds of quite another feather, climbing upon golden wires. The room was far more splendid than anything Little Dorrit had ever imagined, and would have been splendid and costly in any eyes. She looked in amazement at her sister, and would have asked a question, but that Fanny, with a warning frown, pointed to a curtained doorway of communication with another room. The curtain shook next moment, and a lady, raising it with a heavily ringed hand, dropped it behind her again as she entered. The lady was not young and fresh from the hand of nature, but was young and fresh from the hand of her maid. She had large, unfeeling, handsome eyes, and dark, unfeeling, handsome hair, and a broad, unfeeling, handsome bosom, and was made the most of in every particular. Either because she had a cold, or because it suited her face, she wore a rich white fillet tied over her head and under her chin. And if ever there were an unfeeling handsome chin that looked as if, for certain, it had never been in familiar parlance, chucked by the hand of man, it was the chin curbed up so tight and close by that laced bridle. "'Mrs. Myrtle,' said Fanny, "'my sister, ma'am.' "'I am glad to see your sister, Miss Dorrit. I did not remember that you had 
her sister. "'I did not mention that I had,' said Fanny. "'Ah!' Mrs. Merdle curled the little finger of her left hand, as who should say, "'I have caught you. I know you didn't.' All her action was usually with her left hand, because her hands were not a pair, and left being much the whiter and plumper of the two. Then she added, "'Sit down,' and composed herself voluptuously in a nest of crimson and gold cushions on an ottoman near the parrot. "'Also professional,' said Mrs. Merdle, looking at little Dorrit through an eyeglass. Fanny answered, "'No.' "'No?' said Mrs. Merdle, dropping her glass. "'Has not a professional air. Very pleasant, but not professional.' "'My sister, ma'am,' said Fanny, in whom there was a singular mixture of deference and hardihood, "'has been asking me to tell her, as between sisters, how I came to have the honour of knowing you. And as I had engaged to call upon you once more, I thought I might take the liberty of bringing her with me, when perhaps you would tell her. I wish her to know, and perhaps you will tell her.' "'Do you think, at your sister's age,' hinted Mrs. Merdle, "'she is much older than she looks,' said Fanny, "'almost as old as I am.' "'Society,' said Mrs. Merdle, with another curve of her little finger, "'is so difficult to explain to young persons, indeed is so difficult to explain to most persons, that I am glad to hear that. I wish society was not so arbitrary. I wish it was not so exacting. Bird, be quiet!' The parrot had given the most piercing shriek, as if its name were Society and it asserted its right to its exactions. "'But,' resumed Mrs. Myrtle, "'we must take it as we find it. We know it is hollow and conventional and worldly and very shocking, but unless we are savages in the tropical seas—I should have been charmed to be one myself, most delightful life and perfect climate, I am told—we must consult it. It is the common lot.' Mr. Merdle is a most extensive merchant. His transactions are on the vastest scale. His wealth and influence are very great. But even he, bird, be quiet." The parrot had shrieked again, another shriek, and it filled up the sentence so expressively that Mrs. Merdle was under no necessity to end it. "'Since your sister begs that I would terminate our personal acquaintance,' she began again, addressing Little Dorrit, "'By relating the circumstances that are much to her credit, I cannot object to comply with her request, I am sure. I have a son—I was first married extremely young—of two or three and twenty. Fanny set her lips, and her eyes looked half-triumphantly at her sister. "'A son of two or three and twenty. "'He is a little gay, a thing society is accustomed to in young men, "'and he is very impressible. "'Perhaps he inherits that misfortune. "'I am very impressible myself by nature, the weakest of creatures. "'My feelings are touched in a moment.' "'She said all this, and everything else, as coldly as a woman of snow.' quite forgetting the sisters except at odd times, and apparently addressing some abstraction of society, 
for whose behoof, too, she occasionally arranged her dress, or the composition of her figure, upon the ottoman. "'So he is very impressible. Not a misfortune in our natural state, I dare say, but we are not in a natural state. Much to be lamented, no doubt, particularly by myself, who am a child of nature, if I could but show it. But so it is. Society suppresses us and dominates us. Bird, be quiet!' The parrot had broken into a violent fit of laughter, after twisting diverse bars of his cage with his crooked bill, and licking them with his black tongue. "'It is quite unnecessary to say to a person of your good sense, wide range of experience, and cultivated feeling,' said Mrs. Merdle, from her nest of crimson and gold, and there put up her glass to refresh her memory as to whom she was addressing, "'that the stage sometimes has a fascination for young men of that class of character, and saying the stage, I mean the people on it, of the female sex. Therefore, when I heard that my son was supposed to be fascinated by a dancer, I knew what that usually meant in society, and confided in her being a dancer at the opera, where young men moving in society are usually fascinated." She passed her white hands over one another, observant of the sisters now, and the rings upon her fingers grated against each other with a hard sound. "'As your sister will tell you, when I found what the theatre was, I was much surprised, and much distressed. But when I found that your sister, by rejecting my son's advances, I must add, in an unexpected manner, had brought him to the point of proposing marriage, my feelings were of the profoundest anguish, acute.' She traced the outline of her left eyebrow, and put it right. "'In a distracted condition, which only a mother moving in society can be susceptible of, I determined to go myself to the theatre, and represent my state of mind to the dancer. I made myself known to your sister. I found her, to my surprise, in many respects, different from my expectations, and certainly in none more so than in meeting me with—' what shall I say, a sort of family assertion on her own part?" Mrs. Merdle smiled. "'I told you, ma'am,' said Fanny, with a heightening colour, "'that although you found me in that situation, I was so far above the rest, that I considered my family as good as your son's, and that I had a brother who, knowing the circumstances, would be of the same opinion, and would not consider such a connection any honour. "'Miss Dorrit,' said Mrs. Merdle, after frostily looking at her through her glass, "'precisely what I was on the point of telling your sister, in pursuance of your request. Much obliged to you for recalling it so accurately and anticipating me. I immediately—addressing little Dorrit—for I am the creature of impulse—took a bracelet from my arm and begged your sister to let me clasp it on hers, in token of the delight I had in our being able to approach the subject so far on a common footing. This was perfectly true, the lady having bought a cheap and showy article on her way to the interview with a general eye to bribery. "'And I told you, Mrs. Merdle,' said Fanny, "'that we might be unfortunate, but we are not common.' "'I think the very words, Miss Dorrit,' assented Mrs. Merdle. 
"'And I told you, Mrs. Merdle,' said Fanny, "'that if you spoke to me of the superiority of your son's standing in society, "'it was barely possible that you rather deceived yourself in your suppositions about my origin, "'and that my father's standing, even in the society in which he now moved, "'what that was, was best known to myself, was eminently superior, and was acknowledged by every one.' "'Quite accurate,' rejoined Mrs. Merdle. "'A most admirable memory.' "'Thank you, ma'am. Perhaps you will be so kind as to tell my sister the rest.' "'There is very little to tell,' said Mrs. Merdle, reviewing the breadth of bosom, which seemed essential to her having room enough to be unfeeling in. "'But it is to your sister's credit. I pointed out to your sister the plain state of the case, the impossibility of the society in which we move, recognising the society in which she moved, though charming, I have no doubt, the immense disadvantage at which she would consequently place the family she had so high an opinion of, upon which we should find ourselves compelled to look down with contempt.' and from which, socially speaking, we should feel obliged to recoil with abhorrence. In short, I made an appeal to that laudable pride in your sister. "'Let my sister know, if you please, Mrs. Merdle,' Fanny pouted, with a toss of her gauzy bonnet, "'that I had already had the honour of telling your son that I wished to have nothing whatever to say to him.' "'Well, Miss Dorrit,' assented Mrs. Merdle, "'Perhaps I might have mentioned that before. "'If I did not think of it, perhaps it was because my mind reverted to the apprehensions I had at the time "'that he might persevere, and you might have something to say to him. "'I also mentioned to your sister—I again address the non-professional Miss Dorrit—that my son would have nothing in the event of such a marriage, and would be an absolute beggar.' I mention that merely as a fact which is part of the narrative, and not as supposing it to have influenced your sister, except in the prudent and legitimate way in which, constituted as our artificial system is, we must all be influenced by such considerations. Finally, after some high words and high spirit on the part of your sister, we came to the complete understanding that there was no danger, and your sister was so obliging as to allow me to present her with a mark or two of my appreciation at my dressmaker's. Little Dorrit looked sorry, and glanced at Fanny with a troubled face. Also said Mrs. Merdle, as to promise to give me the present pleasure of a closing interview, and of parting with her on the best of terms, on which occasion, added Mrs. Merdle, quitting her nest, and putting something in Fanny's hand, Miss Dorrit will permit me to say farewell, with best wishes, in my own dull manner. The sisters rose at the same time, and they all stood near the cage of the parrot, as he tore a claw full of biscuit and spat it out, seemed to mock them with a pompous dance of his body without moving his feet, and suddenly turned himself upside down, and trailed himself all over the outside of his golden cage with the aid of his cruel beak and black tongue. "'Adieu, Miss Dorrit, with best wishes,' 
said Mrs. Merdle. "'If we could only come to a millennium or something of that sort, I, for one, might have the pleasure of knowing a number of charming and talented persons for whom I am at present excluded. A more primitive state of society would be delicious to me. There used to be a poem, when I learnt lessons, something about, lo, the poor Indians, whose something mind, if a few thousand persons moving in society could only go and be Indians, I would put my name down directly. But as moving in society, we can't be Indians, unfortunately. Good morning. They came downstairs with powder before them, and powder behind the elder sister haughty, and the younger sister humbled, and were shut out into unpowdered Harley Street, Cavendish Square. "'Well,' said Fanny, when they had gone a little way without speaking, "'have you nothing to say, Amy?' "'Oh, I don't know what to say,' she answered distressed. "'You didn't like this young man, Fanny?' "'Like him? He's almost an idiot.' "'I'm so sorry. Don't be hurt.' "'But since you ask me what I have to say, "'I am so very sorry, Fanny, "'that you suffered this lady to give you anything.' "'You little fool,' returned her sister, "'shaking her with the sharp pull she gave her arm. "'Have you no spirit at all? "'But that's just the way. "'You have no self-respect. "'You have no becoming pride. "'Just as you allow yourself to be followed about "'by a contemptible little chivalry of a thing.' "'With the scornfulest emphasis.' "'you would let your family be trodden on, and never turn.' "'Don't say that, dear Fanny. I do what I can for them.' "'You do what you can for them,' repeated Fanny, walking her on very fast. "'Would you let a woman like this, whom you could see, if you had any experience of anything, to be as false and insolent as a woman can be? Would you let her put her foot upon your family, and thank her for it?' "'No, Fanny, I'm sure.' "'Then make her pay for it, you mean little thing. "'What else can you make her do? "'Make her pay for it, you stupid child, "'and do your family some credit with the money.' "'They spoke no more all the way back to the lodging, "'where Fanny and her uncle lived. "'When they arrived there, they found the old man "'practising his clarionet in the dolefulest manner "'in a corner of the room. "'Fanny had a composite meal to make, "'of chops and porter and tea.' and indignantly pretended to prepare it for herself, though her sister did all that in quiet reality. When at last Fanny sat down to eat and drink, she threw the table implements about, and was angry with her bread, much as her father had been last night. "'If you despise me,' she said, bursting into vehement tears, "'because I am a dancer, why did you put me in the way of being one? It was your doing. You would have me stoop as low as the ground before this Mrs. Myrtle.' and let her say what she liked and do what she liked and hold us all in contempt and tell me so to my face because i am a dancer oh fanny and tip too poor fellow she is to disparage him just as much as she likes without any check i suppose because he had been in the law and the docks and different things why it was your doing amy you might at least approve of his being defended all this time the uncle was dolefully blowing his clarionet in the corner, sometimes taking it an inch or so from his mouth for a moment, while he stopped to gaze at them, with a vague impression that somebody had said something. "'And your father, your poor father, Amy, 
because he is not free to show himself and to speak for himself you would let such people insult him with impunity if you don't feel for yourself because you go out to work you might at least feel for him i should think knowing what he has undergone so long poor little dorrit felt the injustice of this taunt rather sharply the remembrance of last night added a barbed point to it she said nothing in reply but turned her chair from the table towards the fire uncle after making one more pause blew a dismal wail and went on again fanny was passionate with the teacups and the bread as long as her passion lasted and then protested that she was the wretchedest girl in the world and she wished she was dead after that her crying became remorseful and she got up and put her arms round her sister little dorrit tried to stop her from saying anything but she answered that she would she must thereupon she said again and again i beg your pardon amy and forgive me amy almost as passionately as she had said what she regretted but indeed indeed amy she resumed when they were seated in sisterly accord side by side i hope and i think you would have seen this differently if you had known a little more of society perhaps i might fanny said the mild little dorrit you see while you have been domestic and resignedly shut up there amy pursued her sister gradually beginning to patronize i have been out moving more in society and may have been getting proud and spirited more than i ought to be perhaps little dorrit answered yes oh yes and while you have been thinking of the dinner or the clothes i may have been thinking you know of the family now may it not be so amy little dorrit again nodded yes with a more cheerful face than heart especially as we know said fanny that there certainly is a tone in the place to which you have been so true which does belong to it and which does make it different from other aspects of society so kiss me once again amy dear and we will agree that we may both be right and that you are a tranquil domestic home-loving good girl the clarionet had been lamenting most pathetically during this dialogue but was cut short now by fanny's announcement that it was time to go which she conveyed to her uncle by shutting up his scrap of music and taking the clarionet out of his mouth little dorrit parted from them at the door and hastened back to the marshalsea it fell dark there sooner than elsewhere and going into it that evening was like going into a deep trench the shadow of the wall was on every object not least upon the figure in the old grey gown and the black velvet cap as it turned towards her when she opened the door of the dim room why not upon me too thought little dorrit with the door yet in her hand it was not unreasonable in fanny End of Book One, Chapter Twenty Book One, Chapter Twenty One of Little Dorrit. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recorded by Mill Nicholson. Little Dorrit by Charles Dickens. Book One, Poverty, Chapter Twenty One, Mister Merdle's Complaint. Upon that establishment of state, 
the Myrtle establishment in Harley Street, Cavendish Square, there was the shadow of no more common wall than the fronts of other establishments of state on the opposite side of the street. Like unexceptionable society, the opposing rows of houses in Harley Street were very grim with one another. Indeed, the mansions and their inhabitants were so much alike in that respect, that the people were often to be found drawn up on opposite sides of dinner-tables, in the shade of their own loftiness, staring at the other side of the way with the dullness of the houses. Everybody knows how, like the street, the two dinner-rows of people who take their stand by the street will be. The expressionless uniform twenty houses, all to be knocked at and rung at in the same form, all approachable by the same dull steps, all fended off by the same pattern of railing, all with the same impracticable fire-escapes, the same inconvenient fixtures in their heads, and everything without exception to be taken at a high valuation. Who has not dined with these? The house so dreary out of repair, the occasional bow-window, the stuccoed house, the newly fronted house, the corner-house with nothing but angular rooms, the house with the blinds always down, the house with the hatchment always up, the house where the collector has called for one quarter of an idea, and found nobody at home, who has not dined with these. The house that nobody will take, and is to be had a bargain, who does not know her. The showy house that was taken for life by the disappointed gentleman, and which does not suit him at all, who is unacquainted with that haunted habitation. Harley Street, Cavendish Square, was more than aware of Mr. and Mrs. Myrtle. Intruders they were in Harley Street, of whom it was not aware. But Mr. and Mrs. Myrtle it delighted to honour. Society was aware of Mr. and Mrs. Myrtle. Society had said, Let us license them, let us know them. Mr. Myrtle was immensely rich, a man of prodigious enterprise, a Midas without the ears, who turned all he touched to gold. He was in everything good, from banking to building. He was in Parliament, of course. He was in the city, necessarily. He was chairman of this, trustee of that, president of the other. The weightiest of men had said to projectors, Now, what name have you got? Have you got Myrtle? And the reply, being in the negative, had said, Then I won't look at you. This great and fortunate man had provided that extensive bosom, which required so much room to be unfeeling enough in, with a nest of crimson and gold some fifteen years before. It was not a bosom to repose upon, but it was a capital bosom to hang jewels upon. Mr. Myrtle wanted something to hang jewels upon, and he bought it for the purpose. Storr and Mortimer might have married on the same speculation. Like all his other speculations, it was sound and successful. The jewels showed to the richest advantage. The bosom, moving in society with the jewels displayed upon it, attracted general admiration. Society approving, Mr. Myrtle was satisfied. He was the most disinterested of men, did everything for society, and got as little for himself out of all his gain and care as a man might. That is to say, it may be supposed that he got all he wanted, otherwise with unlimited wealth he would have got it. But his desire was to the utmost to satisfy society, whatever that was, and take up all its drafts upon him for tribute. He did not shine in company. He had not very much to say for himself. He was a reserved man, with a broad, overhanging, watchful head, 
a particular kind of dull red colour in his cheeks, which is rather stale than fresh, and a somewhat uneasy expression about his coat-cuffs, as if they were in his confidence, and had reasons for being anxious to hide his hands. In the little he said, he was a pleasant man enough, plain, emphatic about public and private confidence, and tenacious of the utmost deference being shown by every one, in all things, to society. In this same society, if that were it which came to his dinners, and to Mrs. Myrtle's receptions and concerts, he hardly seemed to enjoy himself much, and was mostly to be found against walls, and behind doors. Also when he went out to it, instead of its coming home to him, he seemed a little fatigued, and upon the whole rather more disposed for bed. But he was always cultivating it, nevertheless, and always moving in it, and always laying out money on it, with the greatest liberality. Mrs. Myrtle's first husband had been a colonel, under whose auspices the bosom had entered into competition with the snows of North America, and had come off at little disadvantage in point of whiteness, and at none in point of coldness. The colonel's son was Mrs. Myrtle's only child. He was of a chuckle-headed, high-shouldered make, with a general appearance of being not so much a young man as a swelled boy. He had given so few signs of reason, that a by-word went among his companions, that his brain had been frozen up in a mighty frost, which prevailed at St. John's, New Brunswick, at the period of his birth there, and had never thawed from that hour. Another by-word represented him as having in his infancy, through the negligence of a nurse, fallen out of a high window on his head, which had been heard by responsible witnesses to crack. It is probable that both these representations were of ex post facto origin, the young gentleman, whose expressive name was Sparkler, being monomaniacal in offering marriage to all manner of undesirable young ladies, and in remarking of every successive young lady to whom he tendered a matrimonial proposal, that she was a deuced fine gal, well educated too, with no bigod nonsense about her. A son-in-law with these limited talents might have been a clog upon another man, but Mr. Myrtle did not want a son-in-law for himself. He wanted a son-in-law for society. Mr. Sparkler, having been in the guards, and being in the habit of frequenting all the races, and all the lounges, and all the parties, and being well known, society was satisfied with its son-in-law. This happy result Mr. Myrtle would have considered well attained, though Mr. Sparkler had been a more expensive article. And he did not get Mr. Sparkler by any means cheap for society, even as it was. There was a dinner-giving in the Harley Street establishment, while little Dorrit was stitching at her father's new shirts by his side that night. And there were magnets from the court, and magnets from the city, magnets from the commons, and magnets from the lords, magnets from the bench, and magnets from the bar, bishop magnets, treasury magnets, horse-guard magnets, admiralty magnets, all the magnets that keep us going, and sometimes trip us up. "'I am told,' said Bishop Magnet to horse-guards, "'that Mr. Myrtle has made another enormous hit. They say a hundred thousand pounds.' Horse-guards had heard two. Treasury had heard three. Bar, handling his persuasive double eyeglass, 
was by no means clear, but it might be four. It was one of those happy strokes of calculation and combination, the result of which it was difficult to estimate. It was one of those instances of a comprehensive grasp, associated with habitual luck and characteristic boldness, of which an age presented us but few. But here was Brother Bellows, who had been in the great bank case, and who could probably tell us more. What did Brother Bellows put this new success at? Brother Bellows was on his way to make his bow to the bosom, and could only tell them in passing that he had heard it stated, with great appearance of truth, as being worth, from first to last, half a million of money. Admiral, he said, Mr. Myrtle was a wonderful man. Treasury said he was a new power in the country, and would be able to buy up the whole House of Commons. Bishop said he was glad to think that this wealth flowed into the coffers of a gentleman who was always disposed to maintain the best interests of society. Mr. Myrtle himself was usually late on these occasions, as a man still detained in the clutch of giant enterprises, when other men had shaken off their dwarfs for the day. On this occasion he was the last arrival. Treasury said Myrtle's work punished him a little. Bishop said he was glad to think that this wealth flowed into the coffers of a gentleman who accepted it with meekness. Powder! There was so much powder in waiting that it flavoured the dinner. Pulverous particles got into the dishes, and society's meats had a seasoning of first-rate footmen. Mr. Myrtle took down a countess who was secluded somewhere in the core of an immense dress, to which she was in the proportion of the heart to the overgrown cabbage. If so low a simile may be admitted, the dress went down the staircase like a richly brocaded jack-in-the-green, and nobody knew what sort of small person carried it. Society had everything it could want, and could not want, for dinner. It had everything to look at, and everything to eat, and everything to drink. It is to be hoped it enjoyed itself, for Mr. Myrtle's own share of the repast might have been paid for with eighteen pence. Mrs. Myrtle was magnificent. The chief butler was the next magnificent institution of the day. He was the stateliest man in the company. He did nothing, but he looked on as few other men could have done. He was Mr. Myrtle's last gift to society. Mr. Myrtle didn't want him, and was put out of countenance when the great creature looked at him. But inappeasable society would have him, and had got him. The invisible countess carried out the green at the usual stage of the entertainment, and the file of beauty was closed up by the bosom. Treasury said, Juno. Bishop said, Judith. Barr fell into discussion with horse-guards concerning courts-martial. Brothers Bellows and Bench struck in. Other magnates paired off. Mr. Myrtle sat silent, and looked at the tablecloth. Sometimes a magnate addressed him to turn the stream of his own particular discussion towards him. But Mr. Myrtle seldom gave much attention to it, or did more than rouse himself from his calculations and pass the wine. When they rose, so many of the magnates had something to say to Mr. Myrtle individually, that he held little levies by the sideboard, and checked them off as they went out of the door. Treasury hoped he might venture to congratulate one of England's world-famed capitalists and merchant princes. He had turned that original sentiment in the house a few times, and it came easy to him, on a new achievement. To extend the triumphs of such men was to extend the triumphs and resources of the nation, and Treasury felt, 
he gave Mr. Myrtle to understand, patriotic on the subject. "'Thank you, my lord,' said Mr. Myrtle. "'Thank you. I accept your congratulations with pride. I am glad you approve.' "'Why, I don't unreservedly approve, my dear Mr. Myrtle, because—' Smiling Treasury turned him by the arm towards the sideboard, and spoke banteringly. "'It never can be worth your while to come amongst us and help us.' Mr. Myrtle felt honoured by the— "'No, no,' said Treasury, "'that is not the light in which one so distinguished for practical knowledge and great foresight can be expected to regard it. If we should ever be happily enabled, by accidentally possessing the control over circumstances, to propose to one so eminent to—to come among us, and give us the weight of his influence, knowledge and character we could only propose it to him as a duty in fact as a duty that he owed to society mr merdle intimated that society was the apple of his eye and that its claims were paramount to every other consideration treasury moved on and bar came up bar with his little insinuating jury droop and fingering his persuasive double eyeglass, hoped he might be excused if he mentioned to one of the greatest converters of the root of all evil into the root of all good, who had for a long time reflected a shining lustre on the annals even of our commercial country, if he mentioned, disinterestedly, and as what we lawyers call in our pedantic way, amicus curiae, a fact that had come by accident within his knowledge. He had been required to look over the title of a very considerable estate in one of the eastern counties, lying, in fact, for Mr. Myrtle knew we lawyers loved to be particular, on the borders of two of the eastern counties. Now the title was perfectly sound, and the estate was to be purchased by one who had the command of money, jury droop and persuasive eyeglass, on remarkably advantageous terms. This had come to Barr's knowledge only that day, and it had occurred to him, I shall have the honour of dining with my esteemed friend Mr. Myrtle this evening, and strictly between ourselves I will mention the opportunity. Such a purchase would involve not only a great legitimate political influence, but some half-dozen church presentations of considerable annual value. Now, that Mr. Myrtle was already at no loss to discover means of occupying even his capital, and of fully employing even his active and vigorous intellect, Bar well knew. But he would venture to suggest that the question arose in his mind whether one who had deservedly gained so high a position, and so European a reputation, did not owe it, we would not say to himself, but we would say to society, to possess himself of such influences as these, and to exercise them, we would not say for his own, or for his parties, but we would say for society's benefit. Mr. Myrtle again expressed himself as wholly devoted to that object of his constant consideration, and Barr took his persuasive eyeglass up the grand staircase. Bishop then came undesignedly sidling in the direction of the sideboard. Surely the goods of this world, 
it occurred in an accidental way to Bishop to remark, could scarcely be directed into happier channels than when they accumulated under the magic touch of the wise and sagacious, who, while they knew the just values of riches, Bishop tried here to look as if he were rather poor himself, were aware of their importance, judiciously governed and rightly distributed to the welfare of our brethren at large. Mr. Merdle, with humility, expressed his conviction that Bishop couldn't mean him, and with inconsistency expressed his high gratification in Bishop's good opinion. Bishop then, jauntily stepping out a little with his well-shaped right leg, as though he said to Mr. Merdle, Don't mind the apron, a mere form, put this case to his good friend. Whether it had occurred to his good friend, that society might not unreasonably hope that one so blessed in his undertakings, and whose example on his pedestal was so influential with it, would shed a little money in the direction of a mission or so to Africa? Mr. Merdle signifying that the idea should have his best attention, Bishop put another case. Whether his good friend had at all interested himself in the proceedings of our Combined Additional Endowed Dignitaries Committee— and whether it had occurred to him that to shed a little money in that direction might be a great conception finally executed? Mr. Merdle made a similar reply, and Bishop explained his reason for inquiring. Society looked to such men as his good friend to do such things. It was not that he looked to them, but that society looked to them. Just as it was not our committee who wanted the additional endowed dignitaries, but it was society that was in a state of the most agonising uneasiness of mind until it got them. He begged to assure his good friend that he was extremely sensible of his good friend's regard on all occasions for the best interests of society, and he considered that he was at once consulting those interests and expressing the feeling of society when he wished him continued prosperity, continued increase of riches, and continued things in general. Bishop then betook himself upstairs, and the other magnates gradually floated up after him, until there was no one left below but Mr. Merdle. That gentleman, after looking at the tablecloth, until the soul of the chief butler glowed with a noble resentment, went slowly up after the rest, and became of no account in the stream of people on the grand staircase. Mrs. Merdle was at home, the best of the jewels were hung out to be seen, society got what it came for. Mr. Merdle drank two pennyth of tea in a corner, and got more than he wanted. Among the evening magnates was a famous physician, who knew everybody, and whom everybody knew. On entering at the door, he came upon Mr. Merdle drinking his tea in a corner, and touched him on the arm. Mr. Merdle started. "'Oh, it's you.' "'Any better to-day?' "'No,' said Mr. Merdle. "'I am no better.' "'A pity! I didn't see you this morning. Pray come to me to-morrow, or let me come to you.' "'Well,' he replied, "'I will come to-morrow, as I drive by.' Bar and Bishop had both been bystanders during this short dialogue, and as Mr. Merdle was swept away by the crowd, they made their remarks upon it to the physician. Bar said there was a certain point of mental strain beyond which no man could go that the point varied with various textures of brain and peculiarities of constitution, as he had had occasion to notice in several of his learned brothers. But the point of endurance passed by a line's breadth, 
depression, and dyspepsia ensued. Not to intrude on the sacred mysteries of medicine, he took it now, with the jury droop and persuasive eyeglass, that this was Myrtle's case. Bishop said that when he was a young man, and had fallen for a brief space into the habit of writing sermons on Saturdays, a habit which all young sons of the church should sedulously avoid, he had frequently been sensible of a depression, arising, as he supposed, from an overtaxed intellect, upon which the yolk of a new-laid egg, beaten up by the good woman in whose house he had at the time lodged, with a glass of sound sherry, nutmeg, and powdered sugar, acted like a charm. Without presuming to offer so simple a remedy to the consideration of so profound a professor of the great healing art, he would venture to inquire whether the strain, being by way of intricate calculations, the spirits might not, humanly speaking, be restored to their tone by a gentle and yet generous stimulant. "'Yes,' said the physician, "'yes, you're both right. But I might as well tell you that I can find nothing the matter with Mr. Myrtle. He has the constitution of a rhinoceros, the digestion of an ostrich, and the concentration of an oyster. As to nerves, Mr. Myrtle is of a cool temperament, and not a sensitive man, is about as invulnerable, I should say, as Achilles. How such a man should suppose himself unwell, without reason, you may think strange, but I found nothing the matter with him. He may have some deep-seated, recondite complaint, I can't say. I only say that at present I have not found it." There was no shadow of Mr. Myrtle's complaint on the bosom, now displaying precious stones, in rivalry with many similar superb jewel-stands. There was no shadow of Mr. Myrtle's complaint on young Sparkler hovering about the rooms, monomaniacally seeking any sufficiently ineligible young lady with no nonsense about her. There was no shadow of Mr. Myrtle's complaint on the barnacles and stilt-stalkings, of whom whole colonies were present, or on any of the company. Even on himself its shadow was faint enough, as he moved about among the throng, receiving homage. Mr. Myrtle's complaint. Society and he had so much to do with one another, in all things else, that it is hard to imagine his complaint, if he had one, being solely his own affair. Had he that deep-seated recondite complaint, and did any doctor find it out? Patience, in the meantime, the shadow of the Marshalsea wall, was a real darkening influence, and could be seen on the Dorrit family at any stage of the sun's course. End of Book One, Chapter Twenty-One Book One, Chapter Twenty Two of Little Dorrit. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recorded by Mill Nicholson. Little Dorrit by Charles Dickens. Book One, Poverty. Chapter Twenty Two, A Puzzle. Mr. Clennam did not increase in favour with the father of the Marshalsea in the ratio of his increasing visits. His obtuseness, on the great testimonial question, was not calculated to awaken admiration in the paternal breast, but had rather a tendency to give offence in that sensitive quarter, and to be regarded as a positive shortcoming in point of gentlemanly feeling. 
an impression of disappointment occasioned by the discovery that mr clennam scarcely possessed that delicacy for which in the confidence of his nature he had been inclined to give him credit began to darken the fatherly mind in connection with that gentleman the father went so far as to say in his private family circle that he feared mr clennam was not a man of high instincts he was happy he observed in his public capacity as leader and representative of the college to receive mr clennam when he called to pay his respects but he didn't find that he got on with him personally there appeared to be something he didn't know what it was wanting in him Howbeit, the father did not fail in any outward show of politeness, but, on the contrary, honoured him with much attention, perhaps cherishing the hope that, although not a man of sufficiently brilliant and spontaneous turn of mind to repeat his former testimonial unsolicited, it might still be within the compass of his nature to bear the part of a responsive gentleman in any correspondence that way tending in the threefold capacity of the gentleman from outside who had been accidentally locked in on the night of his first appearance of the gentleman from outside who had inquired into the affairs of the father of the marshalsea with the stupendous idea of getting him out and of the gentleman from outside who took an interest in the child of the marshalsea clennam soon became a visitor of mark he was not surprised by the attentions he received from mr chivery when that officer was on the lock for he made little distinction between Mr. Chivery's politeness and that of the other turnkeys. It was on one particular afternoon that Mr. Chivery surprised him all at once, and stood forth from his companions in bold relief. Mr. Chivery, by some artful exercise of his power of clearing the lodge, had contrived to rid it of all sauntering collegians, so that Clennam, coming out of the prison, should find him on duty alone. "'I ask your pardon, sir,' said Mr. Chivery, in a secret manner. "'But which way might you be going?' "'I am going over the bridge.' He saw in Mr. Chivery, with some astonishment, quite an allegory of silence, as he stood with his key on his lips. "'I ask your pardon again,' said Mr. Chivery. "'But could you go round by—' horsemonger lane could you by any means find time to look in at that address handing him a little card printed for circulation among the connection of chivery and co tobacconists importers of pure havana cigars bengal cheroots and fine flavoured cubas dealers in fancy snuffs and etc and etc it ain't tobacco business said mr chivery the truth is it's my wife she's wishful to say a word to you sir upon a point respecting yes said mr chivery answering clennam's look of apprehension with a nod respecting her i will make a point of seeing your wife directly thank you sir much obliged it ain't above ten minutes out of your way please to ask for mrs chivery these instructions mr chivery who had already let him out cautiously called through a little slide in the outer door which he could draw back from within for the inspection of visitors when it pleased him arthur clennam with the card in his hand betook himself to the address set forth upon it and speedily arrived there it was a very small establishment 
wherein a decent woman sat behind the counter working at her needle. Little jars of tobacco, little boxes of cigars, a little assortment of pipes, a little jar or two of snuff, and a little instrument like a shoeing-horn for serving it out, composed the retail stock-in-trade. Arthur mentioned his name, and his having promised to call, on the solicitation of Mr. Chivery, about something relating to Miss Dorrit, he believed. Mrs. Chivery at once laid aside her work, rose up from her seat behind the counter, and deploringly shook her head. "'You may see him now,' said she, "'if you condescend to take a peep.' With these mysterious words, she preceded the visitor into a little parlour behind the shop, with a little window in it commanding a very little dull backyard. In this yard a wash of sheets and tablecloths tried, in vain for want of air, to get itself dried on a line or two, and among those flapping articles was sitting in a chair, like the last mariner left alive on the deck of a damp ship, without the power of furling the sails, a little woe-begone young man. "'Ah, oh, John,' said Mrs. Chivery. Not to be deficient in interest, Clennam asked what he might be doing there. "'It's the only change he takes,' said Mrs. Chivery, shaking her head afresh. "'He won't go out, even in the back yard, when there's no linen. But when there's linen, to keep the neighbour's eyes off, he'll sit there, hours, hours he will, says he feels as if it was groves.' Mrs. Chivery shook her head again, put her apron in a motherly way to her eyes, and reconducted her visitor into the regions of the business. "'Please to take a seat, sir,' said Mrs. Chivery. "'Miss Dorrit is the matter with our John, sir. He's a-breaking his heart for her, and I would wish to take the liberty to ask how it's to be made good to his parents when bust.' Mrs. Chivery, who was a comfortable-looking woman, much respected about Horsemonger Lane for her feelings and her conversation, uttered this speech with fell composure, and immediately afterwards began again to shake her head and dry her eyes. "'Sir,' said she in continuation, "'you are acquainted with the family, and have interested yourself with the family, and are influential with the family.' If, if you can promote views calculated to make two young people happy, let me, for our John's sake, and for both their sakes, implore you so to do. I have been so habituated, returned Arthur at a loss, and during the short time I have known her, to consider little— I have been so habituated to consider Miss Dorrit, in a light altogether removed from that in which you present her to me, that you quite take me by surprise. Does she know your son?' "'Brought up together, sir,' said Mrs. Chivery. "'Played together.' "'Does she know your son as her admirer?' "'Oh, bless you, sir.' said Mrs. Chivery, with a sort of triumphant shiver. "'She never could have seen him on a Sunday, without knowing he was that. His cane alone would have told it long ago, if nothing else had. Young men like John don't take to ivory hands a-pinting for nothing. 
how did i first know it myself similarly perhaps miss dorrit may not be so ready as you you see then she knows it sir said mrs chivery by word of mouth are you sure sir said mrs chivery sure and certain as in this house i am i see my son go out with my own eyes when in this house i was and i see my son come in with my own eyes when in this house i was and i know he done it mrs chivery derived a surprising force of emphasis from the foregoing circumstantiality and repetition may i ask you how he came to fall into the desponding state which causes you so much uneasiness that said mrs chivery took place on that same day when to this house i see that john with these eyes return never been himself in this house since never was like what he has been since not from the hour went to this house seven year ago me and his father as tenants by the quarter came an effect in the nature of an affidavit was gained from this speech by mrs chivery's peculiar power of construction may i venture to inquire what is your version of the matter you may said mrs chivery and i will give it to you in honour and in word as true as in this shop i stand our john has every one's good word and every one's good wish he played with her as a child when in that yard a child she played he has known her ever since he went out upon the sunday afternoon when in this very parlour he had dined and met her with appointment or without appointment which i do not pretend to say he made his offer to her her brother and sister is high in their views and against our john her father is all for himself in his views and against sharing her with any one under which circumstances she has answered our john no john i cannot have you i cannot have any husband it is not my intentions ever to become a wife it is my intentions to be always a sacrifice farewell find another worthy of you and forget me this is the way in which she is doomed to be a constant slave to them that are not worthy that a constant slave she unto them should be this is the way in which our john has come to find no pleasure but in taking cold among the linen and in showing in that yard as in that yard i have myself shown you a broken-down ruin that goes home to his mother's heart here the good woman pointed to the little window whence her son might be seen sitting disconsolate in the tuneless groves and again shook her head and wiped her eyes and besought him for the united sakes of both the young people to exercise his influence towards the bright reversal of these dismal events she was so confident in her exposition of the case and it was so undeniably founded on correct premises in so far as the relative positions of little dorrit and her family were concerned that clennam could not feel positive on the other side he had come to attach to little dorrit 
an interest so peculiar, an interest that removed her from, while it grew out of, the common and coarse things surrounding her, that he found it disappointing, disagreeable, almost painful, to suppose her in love with young Mr. Chivery in the backyard, or any such person. On the other hand, he reasoned with himself that she was just as good and just as true in love with him as not in love with him, and that to make a kind of domesticated fairy of her, on the penalty of isolation at heart from the only people she knew, would be but a weakness of his own fancy, and not a kind one. Still, her youthful and ethereal appearance, her timid manner, the charm of her sensitive voice and eyes, the very many respects in which she had interested him out of her own individuality, and the strong difference between herself and those about her, were not in unison, and were determined not to be in unison with this newly presented idea. He told the worthy Mrs. Chivery, after turning these things over in his mind—he did that, indeed, while she was yet speaking—that he might be relied upon to do his utmost at all times to promote the happiness of Miss Dorrit and to further the wishes of her heart, if it were in his power to do so, and if he could discover what they were. At the same time he cautioned her against assumptions and appearances, enjoined strict silence and secrecy, lest Miss Dorrit should be made unhappy, and particularly advised her to endeavour to win her son's confidence, and so to make quite sure of the state of the case. Mrs. Chivery considered the latter precaution superfluous, but said she would try. She shook her head, as if she had not derived all the comfort she had fondly expected from this interview, but thanked him nevertheless for the trouble he had kindly taken. They then parted good friends, and Arthur walked away. The crowd in the street jostling the crowd in his mind, and the two crowds making a confusion, he avoided London Bridge, and turned off in the quieter direction of the Iron Bridge. He had scarcely set foot upon it, when he saw little Dorrit walking on before him. It was a pleasant day, with a light breeze blowing, and she seemed to have that minute come there for air. He had left her in her father's room within an hour. It was a timely chance, favourable to his wish of observing her face and manner when no one else was by. He quickened his pace, but before he reached her she turned her head. "'Have I startled you?' he asked. "'I thought I knew the step,' she answered hesitatingly. "'And did you know it, Little Dorrit? You could hardly have expected mine.' "'I did not expect any. But when I heard a step, I thought it sounded like yours.' "'Are you going further?' "'No, sir. I am only walking here for a little change.' They walked together, and she recovered her confiding manner with him, and looked up in his face as she said— after glancing around. "'It is so strange. Perhaps you can hardly understand it. I sometimes have a sensation as if it was almost unfeeling to walk here.' "'Unfeeling?' "'To see the river, and so much sky, and so many objects, and such change and motion, then to go back, you know, and find him in the same cramped place.' "'Ah, yes.' But going back, you must remember that you take with you the spirit and influence of such things to cheer him. Do I? I hope I may. I am afraid you fancy too much, sir, and make me out too powerful. If you are in prison, 
could I bring such comfort to you?' "'Yes, little Dorrit, I am sure of it.' He gathered from a tremor on her lip, and a passing shadow of great agitation on her face, that her mind was with her father. He remained silent for a few moments, that she might regain her composure. The little Dorrit, trembling on his arm, was less in unison than ever with Mrs. Chivery's theory, and yet was not irreconcilable with a new fancy which sprung up within him that there might be someone else in the hopeless, newer fancy still, in the hopeless, unattainable distance. They turned, and Clennam said, Here was Maggie coming. Little Dorrit looked up surprised, and they confronted Maggie, who brought herself at sight of them to a dead stop. She had been trotting along, so preoccupied and busy, that she had not recognised them until they turned upon her. She was now in a moment so conscience-stricken, that her very basket partook of the change. "'Maggie, you promised me to stop near father.' "'So I would, little mother, only he wouldn't let me. If he takes and sends me out, I must go. If he takes and says, "'Maggie, you hurry away and back with that letter, and you should have a sixpence if the answer's a good un, I must take it.' Law, little mother, what's a poor thing of ten-year-old to do? And if Mr. Tip, if he happens to be a-coming in as I come out, and if he says, where are you going, Maggie? And if I says, I'm a-going so-and-so, and if he says, I'll have a try, too, and if he goes into the George and writes a letter, and if he gives it to me and says, take that one to the same place, and if the answer's a good un, I'll give you a shilling, it ain't my fault, mother. Arthur read, in little Dorrit's downcast eyes, to whom she foresaw that the letters were addressed. I'm a-going so-and-so. There, that's where I'm a-going to, said Maggie. I'm a-going so-and-so. It ain't you, little mother, has got anything to do with it. It's you, you know, said Maggie, addressing Arthur. "'You better come, so-and-so, and let me take and give him to you.' "'We will not be so particular as that, Maggie. Give them me here,' said Clennam, in a low voice. "'Well, then, come across the road,' answered Maggie, in a very loud whisper. "'Little mother wasn't to know nothing of it, and she would never have known nothing of it if you had only gone so-and-so, instead of bothering and loitering about. It ain't my fault. I must do what I am told. They ought to be ashamed of themselves for telling me.' Clennam crossed to the other side, and hurriedly opened the letters. That from the father mentioned that most unexpectedly finding himself in the novel position of having been disappointed of a remittance from the city on which he had confidently counted, he took up his pen, being restrained by the unhappy circumstances of his incarceration during three-and-twenty years, doubly underlined, from coming himself, as he would otherwise certainly have done, took up his pen to entreat Mr. Clennam to advance him the sum of three pounds ten shillings upon his I.O.U., which he begged to enclose. 
that from the sun set forth that Mr. Clennam would, he knew, be gratified to hear that he had at length obtained permanent employment of a highly satisfactory nature, accompanied with every prospect of complete success in life, but that the temporary inability of his employer to pay him his arrears of salary to that date, in which condition said employer had appealed to that generous forbearance in which he trusted he should never be wanting towards a fellow-creature, combined with the fraudulent conduct of a false friend, and the present high price of provisions, had reduced him to the verge of ruin, unless he could by a quarter before six that evening raise the sum of eight pounds. This sum, Mr. Clennam, would be happy to learn, he had, through the promptitude of several friends who had a lively confidence in his probity, already raised, with the exception of a trifling balance of one pound seventeen fourpence, the loan of which balance for the period of one month would be fraught with the usual beneficent consequences these letters clennam answered with the aid of his pencil and pocket-book on the spot sending the father what he asked for and excusing himself from compliance with the demand of the son he then commissioned maggie to return with his replies and gave her the shilling of which the failure of her supplemental enterprise would have disappointed her otherwise when he rejoined Little Dorrit, and they had begun walking as before, she said, all at once, "'I think I had better go. I had better go home.' "'Don't be distressed,' said Clennam. "'I have answered the letters. They were nothing. You know what they were. They were nothing.' "'But I am afraid,' she returned, "'to leave him. I am afraid to leave any of them. When I am gone, they pervert.' but they don't mean it even maggie it was a very innocent commission that she undertook poor thing and in keeping it secret from you she supposed no doubt that she was only saving you uneasiness yes i hope so i hope so but i had better go home it was but the other day that my sister told me i had become so used to the prison that i had its tone and character it must be so. I am sure it must be when I see these things. My place is there. I am better there. It is unfeeling in me to be here when I can do the least thing there. Good-bye. I had far better stay at home." The agonized way in which she poured this out, as if it burst of itself from her suppressed heart, made it difficult for Clennam to keep the tears from his eyes as he saw and heard her. "'Don't call it home, my child,' he entreated. "'It is always painful to me to hear you call it home.' "'But it is home. What else can I call home? Why should I ever forget it for a single moment?' "'You never do, dear little Dorrit, in any good and true service.' "'I hope not. Oh, I hope not. But it is better for me to stay there.' much better, much more dutiful, much happier. Please don't go with me. Let me go by myself. Good-bye. God bless you. Thank you. Thank you." He felt that it was better to respect her entreaty, and did not move while her slight form went quickly away from him. When it had fluttered out of sight, he turned his face towards the water, and stood thinking. She would have been distressed at any time by this discovery of the letters. But so much so, and in that unrestrainable way? No. 
when she had seen her father begging with his threadbare disguise on, when she had entreated him not to give her father money, she had been distressed, but not like this. Something had made her keenly and additionally sensitive just now. Now, was there someone in the hopeless, unattainable distance? Or had the suspicion been brought into his mind, by his own associations of the troubled river running beneath the bridge, with the same river higher up, its changeless tune upon the prow of the ferry-boat, so many miles an hour the peaceful flowing of the stream, here the rushes, there the lilies, nothing uncertain or unquiet? He thought of his poor child, little Dorrit, for a long time there. He thought of her going home. He thought of her in the night. He thought of her when the day came round again. And the poor child, little Dorrit, thought of him, too faithfully, ah, too faithfully, in the shadow of the Marshalsea Wall. End of Book One Chapter Twenty Two